We're on a four-week series called Why is the Resurrection So Important? Fitting that it was just Easter last week. And we're going through 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That's the chapter we've been focused on. And when we first started the series, uh, Why is the Resurrection So Important? We said it's because it solidifies, it validates everything who Christ said he was and everything that he did made come alive. That was the first one. Uh, The next one is that Jesus Christ's resurrection was the first fruits of our final resurrection, which is our hope, which is our glory. And then today we're looking at the resurrection is important because it is the one thing that gives you strength to survive anything. Just took a small portion of the passage because there's so much information just in this one piece, and it's a theme all the way through Scripture. So we'll read the portion and then we'll unfold it as we continue to work through it. 1 Corinthians 15, 30 through 32 says, And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I die every day. I mean that, brothers, just as surely as I glory over you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus for merely human reasons, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat, let us drink, for tomorrow we will die. Before we look in the passage, we just want to pull a couple things up. Number two, modern Christianity is often based on practical living. Preacher studies his congregation, studies people, and, and as we study people and study the congregation and read about people, general, in this earth, everybody walks into church uh, with some big hurts, uh, with some major pain, uh, with some issues that they have in their life, so we can look around and say every single person is faced with these things. And church, does it offer me something through this pain? Can I have peace? And when we think about peace, well, maybe the Bible has something of how I can live to try to get this peace because the way I'm living right now, I don't have it. So if I can change my life and how I live, maybe peace will come my direction. If I could put practical living together, peace will come to me. If I could put practical living together, then rest will come into me because I must be doing it all wrong. Is the Bible giving me some tools, some information how I can live different so rest can come my way? Is there like a four-step program, an eight-step program, something where I can find rest in this crazy world that I live in? Because we're all wanting rest. We're all wanting joy. We're all wanting happiness. The Bible give us any information of what I need to do to be happy. I mean, can I have a 10-week series, a 14-week series on how to gain happiness and what I need to do when I walk out the door. Do this, do this, do this, do this, do this to gain happiness? Or what about strength? Boy, I just don't even feel like going anymore. I'm tired. I'm exhausted. I have no strength. Lethargic. I just can't even move. No energy. I'm not excited. I want to be excited. I need this strength. Is there any principles, step one, step two, step three, so I can get this strength when I walk out the door, I will then have this strength? Modern Christianity is focused on practical living, and we've kind of embraced it in the sense of, does Christianity meet my needs? I want joy, peace, happiness. I've been coming to church for two years, six years, 12 years. I've been coming to church for 25 years. I still don't have this joy, strength, peace, happiness. God, are you really meeting my needs? Is, God, are you addressing my problems? This is what we look at. I need, been here for a while. My problems seem still not to be addressed. I'm still facing with the same issues. Some people come to church and expecting the Bible to meet their needs and uh, would have prayer as a tool um, in a sense of, God, give me this, because if I have this, then I could have joy, I can have peace, I can have strength, I can have happiness. 
Prayer is a huge tool, a huge power in the Word of God. But what is the power for? Is it a power to be used or a power not to be used? So what happens is if you take prayer and you use it as a power to gain something, well, what if you don't get that one thing that you're using prayer to gain the power for? What I mean is Chuck McGee passed away last Saturday, part of our church. He was way too young to die of liver cancer. Pray for healing, but he didn't get it. When he didn't get it, he passed away, and on Thursday we mourned his death. But we prayed. Uh, Somebody else might say, well, you know, I prayed, and this happened. Praise God, the hand of God intervened, and the hand of God worked. But how many of us have prayed, and it has not happened? What we've asked for. Come to the Bible and say, God, I have to have peace. I have to have rest. I have to have strength. I have to have joy. These are things that I need inside. I am starving for them. Give me a program. Give me something. Give me steps. Tell me how I can need to live so all these things can come my way. Modern church often says, well, practical living. Get your life straightened out and all the situations are getting straightened out. Let's look at the early church. Christianity from the early church was based on a converting power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Converting church was, or the early church was not about, I've got to live practically, I've got to fix my life, because if I get fixed my life, then all good situations will come my way. They hang on, held on to something else. What they hold, held on to is a converting power of the resurrection that did not fix their situations, but that took them beyond and above all of their situations. So don't get us wrong that the Bible does say we want to give you peace and joy and rest and strength, but seeking after those is not the source you point to. Seeking after the resurrection and hanging on to that those things will then come your way. In the early church, the resurrection, literally, people just didn't take up the resurrection. The resurrection actually took them up in a sense that I held on to something so beautiful, so powerful, that I can go through any situation because of that thing I hang on to. It's so beautiful, so powerful. Let's look at passage, 1 Corinthians 15. And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? Oh, we've well, got to remember that Paul was a happy person. <laughs> I think it counted all joy, and Paul's life was just like, I am full of joy. But look at these verses. Why do we endanger ourselves every hour? Can you be in danger and joy at the same time? In this passage, Paul is in danger and joy at the same time. I die every day. Can you die every day and have joy at the same time? This is Paul's lifeline. <laughs> I'm in danger every hour. I die every day. If I fight wild beasts in Ephesus for merely human reasons, what have I gained? There's a purpose for everything that is happening in my life. And what is the purpose for everything that's happening in Paul's life? I've gained nothing if the dead are not raised. He's driven by one item that takes him beyond all his situations, all his circumstances, all his pain, all his misery that is happening in the world, there is something that he's holding on to that is climbing above it. Second Corinthians 11 talks about five times Paul was beaten with lashes, three times he was beaten with rods, once stoned, once shipwrecked, once um, I spent a night in the open sea, I spent dangers of river, dangers of bandits, dangers from countrymen, 
dangers of Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the country, dangers at sea, dangers with the brothers. I labored and toiled and was gone hungry and went sleepless nights, and I was cold and I was naked. This is not a life that you'd necessarily want to sign up for if you're looking for joy, peace, strength, and happiness, but yet it is a life that somebody lived that carried strength, peace, joy, rest, and happiness. What was his source? Was it his situation, or was it something else? 2 Corinthians 1.9 says, Indeed, in our hearts we felt the sentence of death, but this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises from the dead. If I can just have this God and nobody take this God away from me, the situations will be minuscule, Because why? I will be raised from the dead with him. Felt the sentence of death, but it happened. And the reason why it happened is because it was closer to God even in the process of it happening. Philippians 1.21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Our confidence in life is not in our ability to overcome, but the confidence in Paul's life was the ability that Christ had overcame And he took that truth and embraced it in his heart. I can't overcome, but Christ has overcame. Therefore, I am a free man. A free from what? Free of situations, circumstances. This is the way that he lived in the early uh, early church. Let's continue to look at the early church, and then we'll compare it uh, to our church later. Number A, resurrection of Christ took people to higher aim than their personal happiness. Puritan once said, to rejoice in temporal comforts is dangerous. To rejoice in self is foolish. To rejoice in sin is fatal. But to rejoice in God is heavenly. Why to rejoice in God be heavenly? It's what we have when we're here, but also when we have when we're in eternity. You see, the resurrection is something that you just don't take for salvation. The resurrection is actually something that you use right now. Yes, it will give us salvation, but it's still something we use right now. The same God that rose is a God who lives with me now, and he's my source of happiness. He's my source of joy. Philippians 3.10, I want to know Christ and the power of the resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Aren't these verses a little radical? (laughs) This is the early church. I want to know this power of the resurrection. Therefore, he's saying, I want to share in his, what, sufferings? Becoming like him in his death? What is the power of the resurrection? The power of the resurrection is making someone who is dead alive. So what happens Paul, when he's on the road to Damascus, he was dead. And all of a sudden, he was alive. Spiritually dead. No salvation. No kingdom of God. No God, trying to work his way, trying to get his situations to work for him. And after he saw God, what happened? He was converted in that converted power of the resurrection of Christ changed him. He now has a hero that he looks to. He now has a God that he looks to. He now has a friend that he looks to. He has a brother that he looks to. He has a savior that he looks to. Completely converted under the power of this resurrection. Went rafting quite a few years ago, and it was on the Clackamas River. And there's one rapid in particular that you don't want to play around with. And every time we go up to the rapid, 
we tell people we don't want any swimmers here and we don't want any mistakes because if there are swimmers and there's mistakes, we could get in trouble and maybe hit the news. So make sure that we're very careful. It's called hole in the wall. The river goes into a head wall, into a bank. Two-thirds of the river goes this way and one-third of the river goes this way and then it turns into a swirl, a circle. And you can't get out of the circle with sheer cliffs on all sides. So if you get your boat in there, the boat does not get out. If you get swimmers in there, swimmers cannot get out. They just sit there and spin. And there's a, a ladder, a chain link ladder that they actually put there to rescue anybody that is there. But even if you get a hold of the chain link ladder, you still have sheer cliffs on all sides as you hang on to the ladder. So we don't want any swimmers. Well, sure enough, we were going into this rapid, and I was probably a little lazier than normal. And uh, we go up against the head wall and two-thirds is going to go this way, one-third is going to go this way. We go up, oh good, two-thirds is going to go this way. We're not going to go into the hole. But we had one person named Marty Franklin that was sitting in the back of the boat that fell out of the boat when we went to the head wall. So we were going to go this way, and he had the opportunity, the chance to go into that hole by himself. So sure enough, when I watched him fall in, I just reacted and reached into the water as fast and as hard as I can to grab whatever I possibly could. And I got a finger underneath his helmet strap and I grabbed a hold of his helmet strap and I just yanked him back in the boat as hard as he could. I don't know, you know if it was a chiropractic work or not, but it, I think it, it pulled him up hard. Marty looked at me and said, Mike, you're my hero. You saved my life. I am not dead because of you. I said, well, don't count... Don't credit me too much. I had to almost kill you to save you. But, but he did look at me and say, you did something huge for me. What is the resurrection? What is the death of Christ? The Savior of the world, the creator of the world, going to the cross specifically for you, dying for you, and says, I'm going to raise again, and I will live with you through any situation and circumstance you have in your life. Oh, by the way, I'll also give you eternal life heaven with me forever and ever and ever. The biggest gift a human being could ever receive. Number B, the resurrection of Christ gave people a larger horizon than their own lifespan. Still in the, um, the early church stages, back in um, 100 BC, the Maccabees, which is um, the Catholics take it, take it as inspired scripture. We do not believe that it is inspired scripture, but it is a, a extreme, a, an amazing historical book. Second Maccabees 7 tells about a story about a family that is being martyred. It was a, a mother and their seven sons. Now, the king of Syria did not want Christians to be in, underneath his rule. So therefore, he says, I'll make a spectacle of anybody who receives Christ, believes in Christ, and I will tell you, I'll put them up here, and I will crucify them in front of you so you make sure that no one out there believes in Christ. So he had a system. The system was, all right, we've got some people that are refusing to deny Christ. Line up here, and as you refuse to deny Christ, you will stand up here one at a time, and I'll take a hot iron rod, and I'll cut your tongue out, and then I'll take your arms off, then I'll take your legs off, and then I'll burn you at the stake, just in front of everybody to make sure that nobody is going to receive Christ. But I will tell you, you have the opportunity. All you need to do is, is say you don't love Christ. All you need to do is say you don't believe in Christ. So you have the opportunity to live, but if you choose to receive Christ, or to have Christ, then you will be martyred. Well, think of the situation with the mother. The mother's standing up there with seven sons. She's the one in charge what is she going to tell her sons? What is she going to say to her sons before this takes place? This is what her mother said to her sons. I neither gave you breath nor life 
neither was it that I formed the members of every one of you. But doubtless the creator of the world who formed, your, who formed the generation of man and formed out the beginning of all things will also of his own mercy give you breath and life again as ye now regard not your own selves for this law's sake. The mother looks at them and says, what? Take it. I'm not the one that gave you life. Christ is the one that gave you life. So sure enough, one of the sons walked up, and it happened to them. And then the next son, after he watched it, walked up, and it was going to happen to him. And here's a couple responses from one of the sons. Here's a response from one of the sons. One of the sons walk up there, and as he walks up there, he says, The tongue and thy arms I had from heaven, and from God I will receive them again at the resurrection of the dead. Therefore, take him. Another son said, It is good being put to death by men, to look for the hope from God to be raised up again by him. As for you who are crucifying me, thou shalt have a day of judgment, I pity you. Who should be pitied? Should it be the kid or should it be the person that is, is causing the execution? What's inside of these people where they can do that, where they can walk up? Is it their situation that gives them joy, their situation that gives them strength? Or is it something higher than their situation, something beyond maybe even this life here on earth? Hebrews 11.35, women receive back their dead, raised to life again. That's good news. Sometimes people get good things by following Christ. But what about the others? Let's finish the passage. The others were tortured and refused to be released so that they may gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They were put to death by the sword. They, were, they went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in the desert and mountains and the caves and holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith. Yet none of them received what had been promised. In other words, they all died. But God had planned something better for us. Something better is what they held on to for the source of happiness, joy, peace, patience, everything they needed to face life that they were in. 1 Corinthians 6, uh, 6.14 says, By his power God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. That's the only person that is martyred that can walk up and take those things on his shoulders. That's what they held on to. Number C, the resurrection of Christ grounded people deeper than their feelings. What's so amazing about the resurrection is that it's true, is that it happened. If you believe that it did not happen, you believe that it is not true, then you need to give a historical account for the church in the first century. Why? Because the church launched something huge off of one principle. And the principle was Christ died, Christ rose, that's our only message, and the whole church and Christianity exploded and has not left the earth since. Where did it come from? It came from the fact that Jesus Christ died and Jesus Christ was resurrected. And the people that wrote Scripture wrote it off of that principle, wrote it off of that 
fact. This was the rock-solid foundation that built the church, and it's a rock-solid foundation that is in our church today. Jesus Christ died. Jesus Christ rose. Foundation. But we do have feelings. We do have emotions, and I'll tell you, situations um, can arise those feelings. But when those feelings and those emotions come out, are they solid ground? Are they a rock you can stand on? We know our emotions come. We know our emotions go. I don't want to use them as a rock. I need something stronger than my situation, circumstances, and my feelings that react to it. What is it? The ancient church had, it was the resurrection. Paul the apostle said, it's a resurrection. Galatians 5, or 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. I'm no longer even on this planet. I am crucified with Christ. I don't live, but there is what? Christ living in me. The life I live in the body, I live for one purpose, by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is what is driving me. And I count it all joy. This is Paul speaking. All joy to even share in a piece of that suffering. Why? Because someday I'll have the celebration, the glory of his, my resurrection in the end. So looking at this from the ancient church, they were radical, they were crazy, they're hanging on to something. Firm, strong foundation. How do you hang on to this resurrection? Let's just look at our principles that we can look at today of, well, I want to live by this. I want to be able to stand up and be martyred and say, it's going to be okay. How do you hang on to the resurrection? How do I taste it? How do I feel it? What do I need to do to make it the center of my life. Letter four, first thing, put all your trust in the resurrection of Christ, not your agenda for Christ. Entire Bible talks about what? One word. You want salvation, you need to do what? You need to believe. You want salvation, you need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. The more that we believe on the principle, the fact that took place that Jesus Christ died, Jesus Christ rose, Jesus Christ is my Savior, that is where we're going to get our strength. But we have a disease, and uh, the disease came from the Garden of Eden, and that disease is we use people to get what we want. It's just, it's just a disease. It's called, it's called selfishness. And when we get married, it's like my wife, you know, I don't want to say it out loud because it really sounds really bad, but my wife really exists for my happiness. My wife really exists for my joy. My wife exists for my peace. I mean, when she comes into the home, there's some certain things that I need as a human being, and my wife should be the one providing them. And she, of course, says, well, you know, my husband exists for my joy. My husband exists for my happiness. It's just something that's inside of us that we don't say because it's, you know, it's, it's ugly to say. We even have it with our children. My children exist for my joy, they exist for my happiness. And, and when they rebel, that is just completely out of line. And, and it just it buries us, it frustrates us, it angers us because they, they do. Uh, our jobs exist for our joy. Our jobs exist for our happiness. And when I'm mistreated, how would anybody have any right to, to mistreat me? Because this exists for me. Our country exists for my joy, my happiness, my security, my strength. And when things go bad, you know, things are not good. My neighbors even exist, exist for my joy, strength. Because if they do anything wrong, I'm going to sue them because I'm right and, and they're wrong and they exist for my joy, their happiness. There's this peace in us that the world does exist around for us. But we do that with God as well. God, you exist 
for me. Therefore, let me tell you what I need. Let me tell you what I want. Let me tell you what you need to do. Let me explain to you the agenda that I need for my life to be fulfilled by you. Therefore, God, please give me. God, please grant me. God, please do for me. God, please, this is where I'm starving. This is what I'm looking for. Well, God's looking at us and saying, the thing that you're looking for has already been done. And do you know what that is? That's the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the salvation of your soul. This was my agenda for you so you can be saved to survive the crazy world that you live in. The work has already been done. Hang on to the work. Hang on to me and survive the mountains, survive the valleys, survive the waves, survive the crazy world that we live in. But never forget the fact and principle that the work has been done and it was done at the cross and it was done in the resurrection and it is yours if you choose it. 1 Peter 1.3 says, Praise be to God, our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope. I have been born again. When I was first born, I came out crying. And my mom tells me every time you see me, I could never get you to shut up as soon as you came out of my womb. You cried for two days solid. You come into the world, you come out crying. But I'm going to give you, according to this verse, a new birth that has a living hope where you're not cold, you're not angry, you're not frustrated. New birth with a living hope through what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We live in a rough world, but God says, I will give you a new one that you will get and you can hang on to even as you live here. And what is this? It's a living hope, meaning that it does not leave you. You just don't take it and it's done. It stays with you. Another thing we need to do if we're going to hang on to the resurrection and have it at the center of our life is number five, don't ever fail to recognize that there is a positive and redemptive purpose in every problem you face. When we face problems, um, the word often comes out, God would not let me go through this if he loved me. God would not allow this to happen if he cared about me. God would not make this ha- or have this happen because he loves me so much that I would be taken care of and he must not even exist. In fact, we sometimes even doubt our faith that because this existed, God must not exist um, in my life. Every struggle we go through is a redemptive purpose. What kind of redemptive purpose? Well, some you might not even see, but let me give you one in particular. When you look at um, relationships, and I'm talking about the tightest relationships in the world, uh, who has them? Who has the tightest, closest relationships? You might think, well, a husband and wife has the tightest and closest relationship, but did you know that they don't have the tightest and closest soul-to-soul relationship? Do you know who has the closest relationships that are out there? Soldiers that charge into battle together. They grow a bond that is so strong that they would actually go crazy to make sure they're taking care of each other. In other words, what I mean is if there's a grenade thrown down, it's going to be a fight on who gets to land on it before it kills their brother. Why? Because there's a soul-soul connection, a brotherhood that is so powerful that as they go into battle together, they're connected as one soul, one strong, one strong unit. Why? Why would they be so connected? The reason why is because the deeper values you go into and the more difficult situations you walk into, the stronger the relationship is. And more beautiful 
the mountains are. So as they're running into war, surviving war, getting on top of the mountain, and they consistently do that, what's taking place? A relationship that is so strong. A relationship that does not want to be broken. A relationship says, I will die for you under any cause. That's why a lot of soldiers have problems even in their marriage, even in the sense that they will come home and they'll be in their bed and they're thinking, I got to be out with my brothers who are on the front line and they're even drawn to that. They can't get away. Why? Because the bond that has taken place in a soldier relationship. Valleys, mountain. What's the next one? Next closest is a husband and wife. Why do they have a strong, close-knit relationship? It's because you get married and everything's good, and then all of a sudden what takes place? Yeah, you go through what? Valleys. You have children, and, and things start coming your way, and you go lose jobs, and you find jobs, and you go through mountains and valleys, and through this process of what we call life, what's taking place? Your relationship with your wife, your relationship with your husband is actually growing stronger because of the mountains, because of the valleys. It grows the relationship. It's the same way with Christ. If you want a relationship with God, what do you need to do? A strong relationship. Survive the mountains and valleys with him. And in the process of surviving the mountains and valleys with him, you're going to have a love for Christ that you would have no idea you'd ever have if those mountains and valleys would not ever take place. If life was this easy, a relationship with Christ would not necessarily be as nearly as strong if that was the case. The mountains and the valleys is what builds our relationship. Every single difficulty we go through has a redemptive purpose, and God wants to use that redemptive purpose in your life. The most difficult valleys that you've probably even walked through is probably the ministry you need to get involved in. In other words, if I went through this horrible valley and I'd come out of it outside uh, with God, then that's the ministry I probably need to sign up in the church. Why? Because more people are in the valley and they do not believe God exists. And until you can walk into the valley with them and say, I have been in that valley and let me show you that God does exist and my relationship with him is even more strong in that process. 1 Peter 4.13 says, but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ. (laughs) Those are crazy words. Rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. What is the resurrection? Going to the pit of despair and coming out to the highest glory. Pit of despair, coming out to the highest glory. Number six, last one. Believe that God's greatest miracles are found in the human soul. It's one area that... um, if you want the resurrection power to be inside of you, we've got to find out where the, res- where the most powerful miracles are. Um, where, what is the most powerful miracles? Well, i got bad news for all of you, <laughs> just to let you know. And I hate to even tell you what the bad news is, but let you know, every one of us is going to die. Every one of us. And you go, well, I already know that. That's not necessarily bad news. No, we're, seriously, it is bad news. But what we do as we go through life is we get worse news than the bad news. Do you know what the worst news is? Worst news is, oh, I have cancer, so it's coming too soon. So I need to what? Put all my energy, all my strength, all my power, all my passion, because all my joy, my rest and peace is wrapped up in this cancer, and I need God to fight my cancer. I need a miracle. I need to be healed. Well, say if you get healed from your cancer, what happens? You've just been resuscitated for a short while because you're still going to die. 
Yes, it's a powerful miracle. And as we look at the powerful miracle, we can rejoice like crazy that a powerful miracle can take place. And those powerful miracles happen. But it's only a resuscitation for the what? Future. Lazarus was raised again to do what? To die a little bit later. There is more powerful miracles than a resuscitation. Because God's not even in the business of resuscitation. He's in the business of redemption. So what are those miracles? Luke 5 says... Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say, get up and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and walk. Why did he just heal him? He healed him for a purpose. That I carry authority to say, get up and walk. And the only reason I'm showing you that I can do that is because I have a power authority. And what's that powerful authority? I can forgive your sins so you can live eternally. See, what happens is when we ask for revivals and we ask for um, a great work of God, we often look without of what's going on around us rather than the amazing miracles that are taking place within. And what's an amazing miracle to take place within? Well, we are dead in our sins, meaning that we have rejected God and we will reject God for the rest of our lives. And it takes the hand of God to open up our mind. And if the hand of God does not step out to open up our mind, and if that miracle does not take place, we will always reject God. That's a, an inside miracle, a miracle of the soul that does not resuscitate a person, but that saves a person. Now, when we see a resuscitation on cancer, what happens is, oh, it's wonderful. But how much do we really rejoice of the young man or the young lady who received Christ? A resuscitation, not a resuscitation of the soul, but a redemption completely of the soul. You want rest? God can do a miracle in spite of your situation. You want peace? God can do a miracle in spite of your situation. You want strength? God can do a miracle in spite of your situation. There's a divine God who is alive in you that performs powerful, redemptive miracles consistently. And yes, he performs on the outside, but I mean, maybe I'm overstepping my bounds here, but I don't think he does as much because I think that we could possibly get distracted with the miracles that are happening within. Look at some of the miracles that do happen within. God, open my eyes to salvation because I know I can't see you unless my eyes are opened by your hand. Break my addictions before it breaks me. Wash my conscience before I'm wasted by it. Empower me when there's no power within me. God, do a miracle inside of me to love others when others refuse to love me. Do a miracle inside of me that kills my pride because I will always hang on to it because it makes me feel good, but it's going to kill me and I need a miracle. Wash me from my sins before I'm wasted by them. Fill me with joy before I'm ruined by discouragement. Teach me to die for you while I still live for you. Number seven, the resurrection is important because it is the one thing that gives you strength to survive anything. Yes, we looked at the early churches, and uh, you'll say, well, that's out of date because we're not fighting lions. You're right. We're not fighting lions, but we are fighting lumps. Uh, we are fighting diseases. We're being killed by those lumps, and we're being killed by those diseases, and is there any answer to get you through it? Yes, there's one answer. And the answer, yes, we can pray for resuscitation for a longer life, but there's also the resurrection you can hang on to in the process. Yes, there's an answer. And the answer is we 
have embraced a risen Lord who will resurrect us at the end. We're not fighting execution, but we're still fighting death. People, our loved ones, our friends, our families are consistently dying. Yes, we're not dying early. We might even be dying later, but it still carries that same amount of pain. Is there an answer? Yes, there is an answer. It's the same one they used in the early church. The resurrection of Christ, I'm saved by the power of the blood of the Lamb. We are not fighting chains and dark dungeons, but we are still fighting loneliness that can hurt just as much as chains and dark dungeons. Is there an answer? Yes, it's the resurrection of Christ. We are not fighting persecutions, but we're fighting broken families. It's easier to fight an enemy than it is to fight somebody that we love. And it's killing us, it's hurting us, it's bruising us, and it's destroying us. Is there an answer for peace? Do I continue to live with somebody that I don't want to live with, that I I can't stand living with? Is there any hope for me? Do I have to do it for the rest of my life? Yes, there is hope. There's a resurrection. And committed to God through those valleys and over those mountains is going to build a relationship that is so strong, so deep, so rich with God as you walk through life. That is the way we find peace, joy, rest, and strength through all our circumstances. God, we thank you and praise you for the resurrection. God, it is our life. You're not a God of restoration. You're a God of, um, I'm sorry, you are a God of restoration, redemption. You're not a God of restoration. You're a God of redemption. Thank you, God, for being willing to save us, God. Thank you for willing to live with us for eternity. God, you did all the work, and I just pray that we just hold on to all the work that you did so we can survive our situations and circumstances. We love you in Christ's name. Amen.